This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. I'm joined for this episode by Dr. Rossa Brewer, a consultant in paediatric respiratory medicine at Great Ormond Street, who is going to be talking to me about cystic fibrosis. We will cover the pathophysiology, clinical features, diagnosis and management of this important condition, covering several aspects of the respiratory section in the MRC-PCH curriculum. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you, Dr. Brewer, for coming on the show today. Hi, Emma. It's a pleasure. So can I start by asking, what would you like people to get out of this podcast? Well, the field of cystic fibrosis has changed quite a lot in the last 10 years. So a lot of the textbooks that I would have used for my membership will now be completely out of date. And there's lots and lots of new stuff in there. So there's been an introduction, basically, of a new class of medicines that didn't exist before. And some of that is a little bit confusing as things come in bit by bit. So that's probably the most useful thing for today is to go through what cystic fibrosis looks like now compared to what have been a lot of people's undergraduate textbooks, for example. And particularly if they don't see patients with CF because they're quite centralized into CF centers. And unless you meet your kid with CF in in A&E for any particular reason, you're probably not that exposed to it much as an SHO or a core trainee, ST45. So it's a good opportunity to sort of go through that and take away some of the myths, I think. First time I met people with cystic fibrosis, I was worried I would do something to break them, but actually they're incredibly robust human being like most of our patients. So if we can go through that sort of stuff, that hopefully that'll be helpful. Okay, fantastic. That sounds great. And I'm looking forward to hearing about how treatments have changed since I learned about it in my medical school days. To start with, could you provide a bit of background to cystic fibrosis? So what it is and how many children it affects? So it's a genetic disorder. None of that stuff has changed from the undergraduate textbooks. So it's caused by variants in the CFTR gene. And essentially that codes for a protein that is an epithelial chloride channel. So you've got to be able to pump chloride onto your epithelial surfaces so that water follows them. And then you can have nice slippery linings on the inside of your body. In cystic fibrosis, that chloride channel doesn't open or doesn't open for long enough, or the protein doesn't stay at the cell surface for long enough or various other reasons that means that the chloride's not getting out. And in the lungs, that means that your cilia don't stand up because that nice mucus water gel layer is too thin. So your lungs are too sticky on the inside. That's how I explain it to kids when they're asking about their CF. And then any internal surface layer, so your intestines, your liver, are also just too sticky. So these children get difficulty with excreting enzymes from their pancreas into their gut. They get difficulties with constipation. They get difficulties with excreting bile. How common is it? There's about 10,000 people in the UK with cystic fibrosis. Let me make sure I say this correctly now, because the carrier frequency is roughly one in 25. So there's probably one kid in every school class who's a carrier for cystic fibrosis. So the one in 25 person has to meet a one in 25 person and then have kids. And you've got a one in four chance of having cystic fibrosis affecting your baby if you're both carriers. So one in 25 times one in 25 times one in four times 65 million is roughly 10,000 people. And that's why there's that many people in the UK with cystic fibrosis. So about 5,000 kids, about 5,000 adults. It's increasing now in adulthood because people are living longer. Um, And then in terms of risk factors for cystic fibrosis, I mean, obviously it's a genetic condition. So 
getting cystic fibrosis is all about whether you are unfortunate enough to inherit the two copies of the, the genes that your parents are carrying. But what are the risk factors for kind of carrying that gene and for then going on to have offspring that develop cystic fibrosis? Right. Fascinating question. And it isn't completely understood. There are two main theories as to why cystic fibrosis is so prevalent in populations. The main theory was that fluoride secretion is really, really bad for you if you get cholera. And so there was thought to be a selection pressure that benefits people who are CF carriers because they might not get diarrhea as badly if they get cholera. Not completely convinced about that. And then the other theory that has been emerging, I saw a talk on many years ago, is that if you're a CFTR variant carrier, you're at slightly decreased risk of getting bad TB. So again, there might be a little bit of a, a selection bias towards that. And that's mainly data out of Brazil, comparing indigenous people with then the European population who moved there. But again, no one's particularly sure. Now, we pick up people with cystic fibrosis these days on newborn screening. So I would imagine that the generation who are having babies now and getting CF and other things picked up as things like harmony tests and genetic screening become cheaper and therefore more ubiquitous. I expect that in a couple of generations time, there'll be much less cystic fibrosis because we'll probably start routinely testing for carriers before people have babies together, as long as the societies are happy about doing that ethically. But in terms of risk factors for passing it on, well, yeah, as we say to families when they come into clinic after their newborn screening diagnosis, and then an education day, we say the chance of having a baby with CF is one in four. That doesn't mean you've had your one now and you can go and have three other children. It's one in four every time you roll the dice. Most of the time that message lands, but not always. Yeah. Okay. And that's really fascinating. Those kind of theories as to why the gene has become more prevalent in certain populations. So just to clarify, which populations are they that are most likely to carry the gene? Because I believe it's different throughout different kind of ethnicities. Is that correct? Probably, but white, male, middle-aged, Northern, Western European doctors have typically been quite good at investigating other white, Northern, Western European populations. And so it's seen as a disease of people of European origin, but actually there's much more cystic fibrosis in Asia and Southeast Asia than has probably been recognized in the past. So yeah, while predominantly it's, it's, you know, the biggest numbers are US, UK, Australia, Canada, in terms of people who are diagnosed, there probably is much more CF out there than we realized. So that field should update itself and change. And that's important for the medications that are around because the new medicines depend on which gene variants you have. And they are being developed and have been developed for people with the commonest variants. So they're likely to be actively disadvantaging people who aren't getting their CF diagnosed. And then there aren't drugs for them if they are being diagnosed in other parts of the world. Yeah. So actually, that's a really important bias for us to know about and to resolve quite quickly then, I suppose. Yeah. Moving on to thinking about presentation of cystic fibrosis. And you've mentioned that commonly now it can be picked up either prenatally or on newborn screening. Going back to before we had those technologies, what's the kind of common presentation of cystic fibrosis and when should general paediatricians be thinking about diagnosing it in children? Okay, yeah, good question. And we all still need to know this because not everybody does get picked up on newborn screening, particularly people who've not been born in the UK. So you can be picked up with a risk of CF antenatally if there's an echogenic bowel or suggestion of meconiomyelitis on a 20-week scan. And about one in 10 or roughly between 10 and 15% of babies with CF have meconiomyelitis. And your chance of having CF if you have meconiomyelitis is something like nine in 10. So that's obviously, that's a, that's a big risk and that's 
you know, the, the pediatric surgeons are very good at saying this kid needs a sweat test if they see that coming along. Then in the olden days, the classical age for diagnosis of cystic fibrosis, I think in the median was around nine months. So you've got a baby who's getting recurrent chest infections, takes a long time to shake off a bronchiolitis associated with failure to thrive, fatty stools, an always hungry baby. The thing about licking them and tasting the salt on their skin, it might be apocryphal, but yeah, failure to thrive. And these babies are undernourished. They're very skin. They have quite protuberant abdomens and the salt loss and salt wasting. The sodium is really, really important for growth, but it's because they can't absorb fat because they're not secreting the right enzymes into their guts. They aren't doing lipase as well as their amylase. So the babies are always hungry. And by the time when I was started out in, in pediatrics and started doing work in CF, parents were just incredibly grateful because you came along and said, look, this is actually what's going on. Or someone had the thought about the sweat test and then they got to meet us. But then people can be diagnosed any point in life with cystic fibrosis. We occasionally get 15 or 16 year olds who were too old for newborn screening. Sometimes they come via the liver service. ENT are very good at flagging children to us who have bad nasal polyps. They tend to say, look, you should probably have a sweat test. Kids born abroad, obviously, we will do sweat tests on if they're having recurrent chest infections. And actually, we'll do sweat tests on kids who are having recurrent chest infections, even if they've had newborn screening. But there are some well-documented cases of adults who've got milder variants in CFTR who develop proper full-bone CF disease in their you know, 30s and 40s. There's a, I will tell this story. There's a, there's a famous case of the guy who runs a money supermarket, had recurrent chest infections, I think in his 40s or early 50s, and was sent to his GP. He said, go and see a respiratory doctor who did his sweat test. Said, oh, you've got cystic fibrosis. Went through all the various bits and bobs about extra pulmonary disease and liver stuff and infertility because he'd get absence of the vast deferens. And then he said, no, no, I'm not infertile. I've got three children. And he ended up getting a lot of money back from the divorce settlement that he previously had to settle with his wife. Yeah. So that, I tell that story in an educational setting because it really lands in people's heads. A, remember the stuff that isn't the chest in CF and B, you can be diagnosed at any age. Yeah. Okay. Really important points, I guess, that I too am kind of guilty of forgetting sometimes, but probably won't again. Moving on now. So when you have a child or even potentially an adult, as we've just discussed, presenting with some of these more typical features of CF, what investigations would be indicated and how would you go about formally confirming the diagnosis? What's the best way to do that? So the diagnosis is still done on the function of the CF channel, which is the sweat test. It doesn't make sense to people that your sweat has got very, very high levels of chloride when you can't excrete the chloride, but that's because the way the sweat ducts work is upside down. And it's a bit like the kidney, you filter everything, and then you've got to get the chloride back out. So sweat test is the gold standard, but because your gene variants now determine what treatments you will get, if you have a positive sweat test, you will go on and do people's genetics. And there are rare other causes of a positive sweat test that aren't cystic fibrosis. Check, check that in the footnotes, anyone listening, I'm sure there will be a company, because I don't want to get quiz on that now. I think I can think, think about one or two. I think celiac disease is on that list, interestingly enough, and hypo or hyperthyroidism. Anyway, I've gone off track. So you do your sweat test. If the sweat test is inconclusive or in a sort of a border range, there's another test you can have called a nasal potential difference, where essentially somebody puts electrodes in your nose and then runs salt solutions and amylaride and various blocking things in to make sure that your nasal potential difference moves up and down, but pretty niche and really not available everywhere. The other thing you would want to do if you have an abnormal sweat test is to send a poo then for fecal elastase and a stool sample. And you would probably send a urine for sodium just to see how low sodium levels were in the urine because the babies, particularly in the smaller children, will hold on to sodium as much as they can for their growth. 
The other thing that is of interest to CF nerds is what is an abnormal sweat test? Because in the old days, we used to think it was 60. There's now an intermediate range brought in, which is a, if you've got sweat chloride between 30 and 60 millimoles, you can certainly have CF disease, although they tend to be mild or tend to be those ones who may then present later on in life. But a sweat test less than 30 millimoles per litre for, for sweat chloride is considered to be normal. And you, then you can move on to what else is causing these coughs. Right. Okay. That does kind of bring me on nicely to my next question, which is about the differential diagnosis. And if there's any important diagnoses that you should be excluding in children who present with features that, you know, are suggestive of cystic fibrosis, but what else could they be caused by? Yeah. Okay. So there's two facets to that, really. It's the lung disease and then the gut disease. So if you've got a child who's got failure to thrive and has got, you know, lots and lots of runny stools, then you're going to do the thyroid function. You're going to do celiac. You might talk to gastro. You're going to get a calprotectin. You're going to do the sort of what is the, the malabsorption style failure to thrive questions. In terms of recurrent chest disease, it's funny because cystic fibrosis doesn't really present as bronchiectasis. Well, I suppose it can do if you've really not been picked up for a long time. So there's a sort of a grouping now for all of the disorders that ends up giving you bronchiectasis in childhood called chronic obstructive lung disease. And basically that's cystic fibrosis, primary ciliary dyskinesia, and then some other weird and wonderfuls, you know, strange ciliary disorders like bardo beadle syndrome and stuff. Really, you're then in a discussion about what's the workup for someone who's getting recurrent chest infections. So that's sort of, you know, are they severe or are they persistent or unusual or recurrent? So those kids are likely to get a CT scan to have a look and see what their lung architecture is like. And then you're going to do an immune screen as well as the sort of other bits and bobs like an asthma workup, that sort of, that sort of way. So there is lots and lots of children who we will do a sweat test for as a just in case thing, but it's probably not really CF. And if you have this patient who really does look like cystic fibrosis, it's quite unusual to be anything else. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And now moving on to management, which we've kind of said is the kind of interesting part where there's been some quite exciting changes over the last decade or so. Can you talk through first what the principles of management of cystic fibrosis are? Yeah. And the, the real important point to take away is to do the basics right. And because, you know, these drugs aren't available in all countries yet, and we've still got to do the basics right while we work out just how good these drugs are. So the way I phrase it on the ward round is that your insides have got too many secretions inside them that are too sticky and they're infected. So we've got to get those secretions not infected, get them less sticky and get them out of you. So the hallmarks of the chest management is a nebulized mucolytics. So drugs that basically make the mucus less sticky. DNAs, is one which has been around 20 years, probably now, a little bit longer. Uh, hypertonic saline, so 3% or 7% hypertonic saline nebulized to help that osmotic gradient to make the mucus less sticky. Then you hand over patients to the real stars in cystic fibrosis who are the physiotherapists, nurses, and dietitians. And the physios managed to get the patients to get the sputum off their chest with active cycle techniques and various cool fluttering devices that wobble their airways as they blow them out. The current one is called an aerobica. The one before that is an acapella. If you see anything like that on a table next to a pot of cream on your membership exam, you know what you're dealing with because you won't see clubbing anymore, hopefully. So you've got to get the secretions out, you've got to get them less sticky, and then you've got to hopefully have them less infected. So we will still routinely admit some patients for a two-week course of IV antibiotics, usually dual therapy directed against pseudomonas. And there's regular sputum cultures or cough swabs sent in clinic to see if we are picking up particular bugs because if you get pseudomonas, we know that's bad for your lung function. So we will treat those children with three weeks of oral ciprofloxacin and three months of nebulized colomycin. So the, the antibiotic use, oh, every time you read something about antimicrobial resistance, you get a bit of a shudder as a cystic fibrosis doctor. But we're really the people who we should have the antibiotics safe for our kids. I don't feel too bad about it. 
And then the main thing, apart from all that chest stuff, is nutrition. So fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K, we keep a close eye on them. And really, these babies, we want them to be tracking centiles. The idea is to have everybody around the 50th centile for growth. So we do not accept children who are too short or too skinny. You shouldn't be able to spot somebody with CF on the bus. It's not the done thing. So we want to make sure they, they're growing well. And we'll do that with, well, firstly, trying to decrease the burden of infection in their chest. That means they can concentrate their calories on growing rather than angry neutrophils and then dietary supplements. So kids with CF should have pudding with every meal. Imagine pudding with breakfast. Anyway, what a thing. That can be a real struggle if you're ill and people are forcing you to eat. That's a real difficult thing for kids. Thankfully, the new drugs seem to help them to gain weight and gain muscle mass, as well as helping their lung function. So nutrition, 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 nutrition. Think about infection, 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 and get your secretions off the chest by doing your physiotherapy at least twice a day. Fantastic. And pudding with every meal. I'll remember that one. Yep. And then kind of moving on now to the thing that we've been hinting at all the way through this episode, the kind of newer treatments for cystic fibrosis. Can you talk a bit more about those, how they work and kind of the effects that we're seeing with them? Yeah. So, I mean, sort of setting the scene in the late 1990s, the, there were two big hopes for cystic fibrosis. One was gene therapy. I think we've all learned, not just through COVID, that your respiratory epithelium is very keen on not allowing things to insert its DNA into your DNA. So that turned out not to work so well. And then the other class of medicines that were coming along were called CFTR correctors or modulators. There's a few of them which are now being bundled together. And the latest one is a triple therapy, which is three of these drugs used in combination, which is currently licensed for six-year-olds and above, who've got at least one copy of PHE508 DEL or Delta F508, the old nomenclature for it. In CF, there's lots of different ways that the channel can not work. But basically with 508 DEL, what happens is that when the protein unravels on the ribosomes and into the cell cytoplasm, it gets spotted as being misfolded and gets chucked in the dustbin into the Golgi. So one of the medicines in this triple combination adjusts the way that the protein unfolds and then it will traffic to the cell surface. But it turns out that when it's trafficked to the cell surface, it then won't open. So there's another two medicines in this triple combination, which allows the channel to stay open for longer. So that's one corrector and two potentiators in this triple therapy, which is called CAFTRIO in the UK, TRICAFTA in the States. And what they do in trials is you see people's lung function go up by about 10%. Lung clearance index, which is a really detailed measure of ventilation in homogeneity and doesn't need forceful efforts for the kids to do it. So it's a slightly easier test to get some children to do. That goes down by one, which is good. And BMI goes up, I think, by half a Z score, roughly, in most of the trials. And the thing that's fascinating about these drugs is they make your sweat chloride go down. So in the people in the original trials who would have sweat chlorides of 90 to 100 ended up with sweat chlorides of 50 to 60. So you're moving them out of a disease range. And in the olden days, because these drugs are so expensive, we were supposed to do sweat tests on patients to prove that they were taking the medicine. But then we can't really take these medicines away from people if their parents aren't giving it to them. So that sort of went out of fashion quite quickly. Yeah. But that's how they work. It's fascinating. And there's newer ones coming out all the time. And the team at Great Ormond Street are involved in various studies of these drugs, either newer versions of them or using these drugs in, in younger children. So we had children in the studies for the 12-year-olds and above and for the six-year-olds and above. And we are hoping that there will be further studies in younger age groups coming soon. Fantastic. That's really exciting. These drugs, the way they work, you require a copy of the gene to at least make some protein though, even if the protein that is produced isn't folded correctly. So the protein doesn't work properly, but they're still producing the protein. What about people with cystic fibrosis where they're not producing any of the protein because they don't have any working gene? Yeah, so the stop codons, basically. People with an X, G542X, it's not a good one to have. Well, that's, it's about 
10 to 15% of CF patients worldwide, we think, have gene variants that are not going to work with triple therapy. So they are an area of, well, actually intense guilt, mainly for a lot of us. We feel really bad for these patients, and but lots and lots of research going into that. If people want to look up rectal organoids on PubMed after this podcast, they'll be like, yeah, I know. It's a very good way of finding CFTR and seeing how channels will respond to various high throughput drug systems. So yeah, if you've got a stop code on, there are various drugs that have been tried. There was some aminoglycoside-like medications are supposed to help you read through stop codons, but they've not been very successful and haven't quite made it to market in terms of drugs. So those patients, there's a big research in adults going on at the moment across Europe called HIT-CF, which is looking, what can we do about people who don't get triple therapy because they're not eligible because they're variants, so essentially the ones you don't want to have. But the, the vast majority of patients, 80 to 85%, have got at least one copy of PHE 5 del so, uh, so on the whole, it's a good story. But we do feel very bad for the patients who we can't give these drugs to. And everybody listening to this who works in the CF service will have those families in their heads and will know who we're thinking of in terms of feeling yeah, sort of powerless about that, which is why I did want to push how important the basic stuff is with the nutrition and the antibiotics and all that stuff as well, because we can't let go of the good basic work that has made people with cystic fibrosis basically double their lifespan over the last sort of 40 years. And we're hoping these drugs will well will out further years onto that. Yeah, absolutely. So those principles of treatment just remain so important to, yeah. to remember and practice. Yeah. What's the prognosis for children with CS? And how has that been affected by the introduction of these new therapies? Good question. The short answer is that we're not sure yet. If all these drugs were around, we would see families at newborn screening and quote the median survival of about, well, so we'd say kids should live to their mid-40s. A couple of things have confused that now because we keep diagnosing older people with mild CS, the survival's going up based on the stats for the registry. So that's completely, it's completely useless information to an individual, but for populations, it is interesting. We all lose about 1% of our FEV1 every year from when we reach adulthood, which is why the oldest person in the world doesn't really go beyond 120, because you've only got 100 FEV1 to lose from about the age of 20, right? In cystic fibrosis, you tend to lose FEV1 at about 3% per year. These new medicines make you gain 10 to 15% on average for your FEV1. And the registry data from some of the older molecules is beginning to suggest that people are living about 10 years longer. So... I will say this now, but I will probably look back in 2033 and say, oh, that was a bit daft, but it looks like you should gain about 10 years from these medicines. So let's say somebody born with CF today, if nothing particularly changes in their lifetime, should live to the age of 55 rather than 45, which still is not great news. Hopefully things will get better, but that's, that's sort of the rough prognosis. Of course, the range is really, really wide. We're doing much fewer lung transplants for children with cystic fibrosis now than we used to. But it still does happen on occasion. So there is a big range. But having been in CS now since I've done about 15 years in CF in SHO reg and consultant life. And I remember three patients probably dying. Where I was chatting to some of my colleagues who are now retirement age, they would lose a child with cystic fibrosis every month. And it was never a disease of adulthood. Whereas now, you know, the adults are having to work out how to commission teams who can look after adults with cystic fibrosis all over the country because they're just increasing in number. So it's it's a really, really fantastic story and held up as one of those big success stories in medicine in terms of taking a single gene diagnosis and really pushing that, that field forwards. So, yeah, but it doesn't make the newborn screening day any easier. No, it doesn't. So even though the prognosis has undoubtedly improved, it's still something that's, you know, we could work to improve further. Absolutely. Finally, moving on to our quick fire questions that everybody who comes on this podcast gets grilled with. 
Firstly, are there any classic exam questions that tend to come up again and again about cystic fibrosis? Yes, pseudobarters. That's the classic, isn't it? Where you have a child who turns up with low chloride. Oh, do they have a high potassium or a low potassium? God, so I think I've seen pseudobarters. In fact, I have seen pseudobarter syndrome twice in my life. That gives you an idea of how useful it is as an exam question. But that's one. I can't go through the biochemistry now because I've, I've just basically forgotten what it looks like. And if you show me a blood gas with it on and said, this is a kid with CF, then I would recognize it, honest, your honor. What else comes up? Well, there's the classic exam scenario. Because lots and lots of kids with CF are very, very well, but have got some signs, they will end up turning up in your membership exam. And in your membership exam, when you do your respiratory examination, always make sure you ask the patient to do a huff and a cough. Huff is getting them to do a huff like, and if the patient does that, First time, brilliantly, you know, they've got a chest disease because they've been asked to do it before. Whereas if they go, what, what are you on about? A, you know that you're a better candidate than the one who's in there before because they haven't been told the huff already. And B, they probably haven't got cystic fibrosis. But there's various clues around. If you see a pot that says Creon on it, or you see one of these little, like an aerobica or an acapella, just put that into Google images and see what they look like. And if you spot them next to the patient, they're fine. Because you're not going to hear a wet cough and see clubbing. You might hear a wet cough. You might get a wet huff depending on how well they are. But if they've been dragged in from the ward, then you can look and see if they've got a, a port cath or various other things as well. Those are the classic things for the membership. Right. So looking for those little clues. Yeah. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend to listeners about where they can find out more? If you've got access to journals, then there was a brilliant review of cystic fibrosis written a year or two ago in The Lancet by Professor Jane Davis is at the Brompton. If you are more looking on the internet itself, rather than managing to hack into Elsevier's ironclad fist, then where else is good for CS? I mean, again, if you have access to UpToDate, that's excellent on cystic fibrosis. There's the London DNU website, I think has got an article about cystic fibrosis on it. The other place that is very good, actually, and particularly useful for people at the beginning is to have a look at the Cystic Fibrosis Trust website, which is the UK charity, and the Americans have got one called the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And there's tons of very, very useful patient information leaflets on there. And as a small confession, as a consultant, I often find if I have someone coming in with a disease that I can't really remember that much about, I will often read patient information leaflets about it. A, to remind me of what's going on in that disorder. And B, so I know what resources are out there for patients that they've been reading about, because then they will often base conversations about that with me. So CF is a good example of just look it up on the CF Trust. Okay, fantastic. And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points? Number one, before doing a podcast, look up the biochemistry of pseudobarter syndrome if you're going to be daft and mention it during a discussion. Number two is, it's, it's really interesting thinking back to medical school and doing all of the physiology and pharmacology, how important that is in understanding how these medications work. So don't skimp on that moment when you're doing your knowledge and science stuff. And my main takeaway point from this, which we haven't really talked about a huge amount, but I do want to impress upon people is that CF is a really, really excellent example of really good MDT working. And if I need to know something about a patient, it's much quicker for me to dial into the database and the CF nurse's brains than it is to go hunting through their notes trying to find out info. Because it's, it's a really difficult thing. Anyone who's got small children knows what it's like to try and get them out of the door in the morning with the correct shoes on the right feet and hair brushed and teeth brushed. And imagine doing that plus 23 pills and a half an hour physiotherapy session. It must be extraordinary. The difficulty in people's lives having a chronic disease like this is not to be underestimated. And the MDT support that provides these families, as opposed to just being a doctor writing antibiotic prescriptions, is extraordinary. And uh, the people who are the kind of the real heroes in the CF story aren't particularly the scientists. It's certainly not the doctors. But it's definitely the physios, the dietitians, and the nurses who would support these families through this journey. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important take-home message, actually. So thank you for that. Well, thank you very much for talking to me today, Dr. Brewer. It's been a really interesting recap for me about cystic fibrosis, and I've learned a lot of things that I didn't know before and will now remember. Pleasure, pleasure. I'm going to go and look up pseudobarter syndrome. <laughs> Get back to me on that one. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.